has already been mentioned, we are beginning a new sermon series today entitled Living Faithfully in a Shifting Culture, looking mostly at Elijah, a little bit at Elisha, looking at their circumstances and the people that they interact with. We're doing this because there are parallels between then and now. For example, for several centuries since its founding, the United States has been Christianized. It is influenced, strongly influenced by Christianity. And that influence can still be seen, but it is fading. And today we live in a rapidly changing culture that is turning away from God, turning away from Christianity more and more. If you like to read about things like this, about how this change occurred, there's a good book called How Not to Be Secular. It's a 150-page summary of a 900-page book that shows how you have this shift in Western culture, starting in Western Europe in the 1500s, with a default assumption with the Catholic Church, with the Reformation, default assumption, well, of course there is a spiritual part of life, of course there is a God, and we were made to relate to Him, move from there, 1500s to the late 1900s, early 2000s, Western Europe and United States, default assumption for most people, well, of course there is no spiritual world, and if there's no spiritual world, there is no God, and so life is mine to make and do as I wish. And he talks about how that shift occurred. Part of the reason we're looking at this series is to realize that we are not the first uh, group of people to go through such a major shift. This pattern has been repeated multiple times. So we're going to begin today by reading the first verse of 1 Kings 17. We're going to look at some background, and that background is not just for today's sermon, but for the whole sermon series, and then we'll look at the rest of the chapter. So remain seated. Let's read together from the screen, 1 Kings 17, verse 1. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives... Before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now that's an abrupt introduction. Seemingly from nowhere, this man shows up before King Ahab, claims to be a prophet of God without actually saying those words, makes a pronouncement of judgment, and then disappears. Let's get some background. And we're going to start from the beginning, not only because it's a very good place to start, but because as you read the Bible, you see that God introduces themes in the book of Genesis that he carries out throughout the Bible. God's plan from creation was and is to have a people that are his, people that he loves and people that love him. And so that's the first theme that I want you to remember, a people for God. But as you read the book of Genesis, you only get to chapter 3 where Adam and Eve turn from loving God to listening to Satan and his lies and they rebel against God and all of us have copied them. And so right there in Genesis 3, you see God introducing and beginning redemption and restoration. And so, as I've said before, there are four words, if you want to use them, that will give you the big picture of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And 
what you see then with the Bible from the very beginning is it is a record of God pointing forward to and then accomplishing and applying that redemption and restoration through Jesus. And so that's another theme. Redemption and restoration. God is restoring what we've broken. Now, God is the one who gave us the Bible. And as he gave us the Bible, God selected what history would be included and what would be emphasized when he gives a history. And one of the ways to tell where God is placing an emphasis is when you see a change in the speed of his narrative in terms of the events that happen. So let me give you an example. Book of Genesis. As we read it, it has 50 chapters. The first 11 chapters cover as much as 2,000 years. Okay, that's pretty fast. You get to chapter 12 through the re- end of the chapter, so the end of the book, roughly 80%. He covers four generations. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. He slowed way, way down. Why did he do that? Because one of the things he promised Abraham was that he would make him into a nation of people. It's connected to that theme, a people of God. So then you read the second book of the Bible, Exodus, and as it begins, it begins almost 400 years later. And that nation is now here, and it's the nation of Israel, but they are slaves in Egypt And God uses Moses to free them from the slavery and lead them. And God speaks to his people through Moses. And as you saw, our catechism was talking about the Ten Commandments. And God spoke to the the nation of Israel in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy through Moses, except for one time. And that was when he gave them the Ten Commandments and God spoke directly out of the cloud, out of the fire on the top of the mountain and he spoke to them and he gave them the Ten Commandments. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is recounting the history of all this that has occurred. In in chapter 5, he's just reviewed again, given again the Ten Commandments and in verse 32, God through Moses says this, You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. So here's another theme, and that is that God calls us to do or to obey him because he's our creator and our king. And in our second catechism question, we saw Jesus' summary of the Ten Commandments, which gives it a whole different flavor. Because if you just say, well, there's Ten Commandments, there's these Ten Rules you have to follow. That's one thing. But then when you look at the summary that says what this really is talking about is you and I loving God and loving each other. That changes what that law sounds like and looks like to us. And in these verses from Deuteronomy, God is encouraging his people to obedience. And he says three things in verse 33. He says, first, if you follow my word, you will live. Now he says that because God himself is life and the giver of life. And when you move away from God and rebel, like Adam and Eve did, and like we have all done, you move into death. 
You move away from life, you're moving into death. That's the first thing he says. Then he says, if you follow my word, it will go well with you. God is wiser than we are, and God is good, and God's way is not only the way of life, it's also the way of shalom. That Hebrew word means more than just peace. It also means wholeness. And then thirdly, he says, then you'll live long in the land. And I don't think he's just talking about long life. I think it also has this idea connected with the shalom of enjoying the life and enjoying all that God provides. And this encouragement is related to some motivation. And I kind of put that in quotes. In Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, where God gives both positive and negative motivation. The positive motivation, he says, if you follow me, if you do, if you obey me, then here's all the good that I will give you. And God basically, almost as if he heaps one good on top of another that he would do for the people, for their animals, for their crops, for their nation. He's going to do all this good, which connects with what we read in the New Testament of James, that every good gift we have comes from God. But then he also has a negative motivation because we're broken people and we naturally turn away. He says, if you choose to turn away, then I'm going to bring consequences, negative consequences that are called curses. And so now you're going to have trouble here and you're going to have trouble there. You're going to have this difficulty and that difficulty. And why is he doing all of this? This motivation, what is he motivating us to? To turn to God, to turn back to God, to follow God and obey him so that we love God and we love others. And God reminded his people in the Old Testament of this motivation through his prophets. These were spokesmen. They spoke for God, and they said to the people, this is what God has said and is saying today. And they spoke to the people and to kings and to other nations as well. And there's a theme, connect, another theme connected with this. And that is that God calls us to remember. In my own personal Bible reading, I started in, I don't know when I started, in Genesis. I'm now into Deuteronomy. And I'm seeing this word again and again. Remember, or the phrase, do not forget. Because we do so easily turn away and forget. And God used his prophets to speak to the people and say, remember. Remember God's word. Remember his positive motivations. Remember his negative motivations. This is what he wants you to do. Some of those prophets, Moses, Samuel, Nathan, and Elijah. That's just a few of them. And one of the things that you see is that prophets could and did speak to kings. So Moses speaks to Pharaoh, who's the king of Egypt, and confronts him. Nathan speaks to King David and confronts him. As we see today, Elijah speaks to Ahab and confronts him. And they can do this because kings are under God's authority just as much as every one of us as well. A couple more pieces of background. We get a large chunk of Old Testament history in six books. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. These books cover the times of the kings when Israel had a king, the nation. First and Second Samuel has three major characters. Samuel, who was a prophet, and he was the last of the judges and used by God to anoint Saul as the first king of Israel and anointed David as the second king. 
Kings and Chronicles basically overlap. They cover the same basic time period with Chronicles giving you a little extra summary of earlier history, but it's talking about the times of the kings. And we're going to be spending most of our time in this series in the book of 1 Kings. So let's get a short overview. It begins with Solomon, but spends about 11 chapters or so. talks about his rule, but it also talks about the end of his life, where he let his heart be turned away from God by his wives. Now, if you remember, he had, I think it was a total of a thousand wives and concubines. Okay, I think that was it. Um, now, Solomon was a wise man. God gave him wisdom in many areas of life, but there's one area where he was <laughs> totally lacking, and that was with his wives. Because in Deuteronomy, before God ever, uh, before there ever was a king, God gave some warnings, some encouragements and warnings, and one of the warnings to the kings was, don't take a lot of wives. But there was a practice in the day of kings making political marriages. And so one king would give his daughter to be married to a king of another nation, and the idea was we're going to have a semi-treaty here, we're going to have a relationship so that it's much less likely that we'll go to war with each other, much more likely that we'll trade and we'll both benefit. And so many of Solomon's wives were foreign wives. And when he married them and they came to live with him in Jerusalem, one of the things he did not do is he did not tell them, you are now my wife in my house, in my land, and you will worship my God. He let them worship the gods of the lands that they had come from. And when he got old, he loved his wives more than he loved God. And he built temples for their gods that they could worship them. And as a response, God says through his prophets, Solomon, after you die, I'm going to divide the kingdom. The 12 tribes are going to be split. The 10 northern tribes will become a nation called Israel. The, the two southern tribes will be Judah. And God selected the man to be the king of those 10 northern tribes, and his name was Jeroboam. And God sent a prophet to Jeroboam and told him, Jeroboam, this is what I'm doing. This is, this is Solomon's sin, how he turned away from me. And here's the consequence. And here's what I am promising you. I am giving you the ten northern tribes. They are yours. And if you follow me and obey me, they will be given to your descendants just like I had promised to David. But he didn't trust God. He didn't trust God to keep that promise. And one of the things you see when you read Kings and Chronicles about the kings of the, the ten northern tribes, every single one of them, and that kingdom lasted about 200 years, it says they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And that evil is talking about how the worship of God was corrupted. And that's important because a relationship with God is foundational to how we live our lives. And if we have corrupted that relationship, we've just corrupted how we're going to live our lives. And so Jeroboam was given those ten tribes, but he, from his perspective, he had a problem. There was another requirement God had given, and that was that all of the Jews and all twelve tribes were to go to the temple 
in Jerusalem and worship at least three times a year. And his problem, again, Jesse was talking about political situation. It was a political problem. The temple is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in Judah. It's the other Jewish nation. And he's, Jeroboam is afraid that the king is going to be able to sweet talk the people when they come down to the temple and get them to change loyalties. Now, again, that's his fear in the face of God's promise that this kingdom is yours and your children's if you listen to me. And he decides he doesn't, he's not going to trust God, and so he makes an announcement. He says to the ten tribes, you've chosen me as the king, and I have chosen new places and new ways to worship Yahweh, God. And he pulls from Jewish history, and he makes two golden calves, that is, two golden bulls, and sets them up with new priests and new ways. And he says, you're still worshiping the same God. I'm just giving you a new way to do it. And to himself he's saying, and now you have no need to ever go to Jerusalem again. Now, related to this, I heard a pastor once ask, wives, imagine that your husband comes to you one day and says, you know, I love you very much. We've been married a good long while but I have decided that I'm going to date some other women. And husbands, imagine that your wives say the same kind of thing to you. How do you respond? Are you angry? You better be. Do you feel betrayed? Absolutely. So does God. When we say, oh, I still love you, but I'm not going to listen to you the same way I did before. I'm going to do things different. That's what's going on here. Now, to be clear, Jeroboam did not totally abandon God. What he did was he said, you know what, God, we're going to do God plus. We're going to do God plus a new way to worship you. And you know what? This happens today in Christian denominations. Has happened and is happening today. Not in the same way. We haven't gone from changing the buildings or the trappings and those kinds of things, but the teaching has changed. And it's a new way of looking at the Bible and a new way of, of relating to God that doesn't line up with what God has already told us in His Word. And so this sets the stage so that less than 70 years after Jeroboam begins this new worship, Ahab becomes king and he dives head first into the spiritual cesspool of Baal worship. And he takes the nation with him, most of them, as he goes. We read this in 1 Kings 16. It's the very end of the chapter, just before what we just read in 17.1. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Just pause right there. This is a typical form of how a new king was introduced. They take a hook and connect it to another king so you know how the time frame fits. Gives the king's name, king's father's name, and then talks about the king for just a second. And as I said before, every king of the northern ten tribes, it says this, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. But with Ahab, we continue. 
more than all who were before him. Verse 31, and as if it had been a light thing, that is a small thing, for Ahab to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, continuing the corrupted worship, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. So here's one thing I'm going to push back a little bit with what Jesse said. It wasn't just Jezebel. Okay. Um, you don't get the picture that Ahab was a wuss. Okay. That Jezebel totally controlled him. The picture here is that after she introduces him, he, on his own volition, dives straight in. Thinks it's wonderful. Now, the first thing you see here is it's another political marriage. Because... Sidon is just north of the kingdom of Israel. And what we also see, Ahab continues the corrupted worship of Yahweh, and now he adds Baal worship. And Baal worship focused on two things, on pleasure and fear. It was, it was very much oriented on sensual enjoyment, but the fear part had to do with food. You see, Baal supposedly brought the rain, and rain is what you need to grow food, and you need food to live. And that's where the fear came in. If you don't worship him well, he's not going to bring the rain. If he doesn't bring the rain, you don't get the food, you die. And this is the situation when Elijah comes on the scene as the prophet. Now, the, by the way, the name Elijah means, my God is Yahweh. That's what it means. So Elijah confronts Ahab, as we read, this announcement, I'm the prophet of the one true God and there will not be any rain until I say so. And what God is doing, he is publicly confronting and publicly discrediting Baal. God used Elijah to declare there would be a drought. Drought means no rain. It ended up lasting three and a half years. It wasn't just a one-season anomaly. It wasn't just a, oh my goodness, you know, this does happen occasionally, doesn't it? Three and a half years. And Elijah was specific. He said, no rain and no dew. Because even if there isn't any rain, sometimes you can get heavy dews where the grass and the ground is wet every morning. And that can keep the plants alive. But no dew and no rain, they don't live. And that means no crops. And crops, no crops means no food. And Baal did nothing because Baal was fake. Now why is God doing this? God is warning the people of evil. He'd already sent prophets to Jeroboam when Jeroboam made his announcement about we have this new way of worshiping God. And these prophets confronted Jeroboam and he didn't listen. And God is confronting the people, saying, corrupted worship of God is evil. Worship of Baal and any other false god is evil. And then he asks a question in all of this circumstance that he gives. Who really provides for you? You see, God had been providing for the Jews for their entire history, just as God provides for us and for everybody who's ever lived. I used to, I don't know where I got this idea, but I used to think that, even though I wouldn't put it this way, that God basically wound the world up like a clock and set it off 
And so the seasons would come, and the rain would come when it should, and winter would come, and all this other stuff would happen as it should, and God wasn't really involved. I was so wrong. God is the one who brings rain every time. God is the one that causes the plants to grow. The farmers, they'll tell you. I plant the seed, we get the soil ready, rain comes. Not quite sure exactly how that happens, but yes, it grows, and then we have food. And God had been providing for the Jews. And sometimes the Jews turned to God and listened to Him and obeyed Him, and sometimes they turned away, just like us. Well, after God has Ahab, uh, Elijah confront Ahab, God directs Elijah to leave. He says, I want, you to, I want you to leave. I want you to go. And God takes him into the country in the middle of nowhere and plants him by a brook, a little creek. The key thing, one of the key things to get here is that God directed him. And I say that because Elijah is not hiding out of fear. Later, after Jezebel threatens him, yes, he runs away and hides, and that time it's out of fear. But this time it's not. God is making Elijah unavailable to Ahab. And then God provides miraculously for Elijah. He has water from the creek to drink, and every morning and every evening, how would you like to get fed this way? God has birds bring the food to him in their beak. And he has something to eat. Now, we don't know exactly how long Elijah lived by the creek. I'm guessing it was at least several months, maybe even longer. It was long enough for the drought to get a really good grip on the land, for everything to be turning dry and dying. And when the stream dried up, God tells Elijah to go to Zarephath and that God would provide food for Elijah there through a widow. And so Elijah goes. So if you put up the map, here's a map that shows you the bottom... On my screen, it was yellow. This is kind of a mustardy color. Is the kingdom of Judah, that's the southern two tribes. The blue is the Israel, the ten northern tribes. And just above it, you see that list, that, that those uh, towns there right on the Mediterranean. Two of those are Tyre and Sidon. And right in between them is Zarephath. And what you see is that God sent Elijah someplace that wasn't Jewish. He's in Baal country. Remember that Jezebel came from Sidon and the king of Sidon worshipped Baal. So this is Baal country and that's where Elijah goes. And as Elijah is coming into the city gates, there's the widow and she's gathering up sticks to make a little fire. And the, their culture is different than ours in some ways, especially in terms of hospitality. He comes up, sees the widow. He asks her for water. She doesn't think that's unusual. And as she's going to get the water for him, he asks her for some bread. And in 1 Kings 17, 12, this is her response. She said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a, in a jar and a little oil in a jug, and now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. First thing we see is that the widow notices Elijah is Jewish and so she refers to God, not Baal, even though she's in Baal country. She's a widow. 
which in that culture meant that she was especially vulnerable because she has no man, no husband to provide and protect. And possibly because of that, she may have been one of the first to run out of food. We don't know. But we do know this, because she said it. She expects to die of starvation. And Elijah has asked her for some food. And she's explaining her situation. And Elijah asks her again, would you please go ahead and fix me some bread and trust me? And then he gives her a promise from God, starting at verse 14. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, that is, it won't run out, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So here is God, Yahweh, speaking and acting in a country outside of Israel. See, back then, people thought that the gods were local. You, you move from one part of the geography to another, you have different gods. Yet God is God overall. Notice that the drought isn't limited to just Israel. It didn't stop at the borders. It's in Baal country. There's a drought going on there because, again, God is confronting Baal in Baal country too. And Baal, and, and Baal can't do anything because he's a false god. False gods don't ever give. Not really. They just take. And behind them is Satan, who's making all these false promises and trying to get us addicted to these various gods that will follow them. Now, there was a mythology about Baal that had been developed. It's all fiction, but it goes like this. There's a war among the gods constantly going on, and every year, Baal loses to these other gods, and that would fit the time when our fall and winter, when the trees go dormant, the plants die, and every spring and summer, he's victorious again. He wins, and things grow. That's all a fiction. God sends Elijah to Zarephath, to Baal country, and so Elijah is there as a missionary. And God chooses a widow and her son, somebody who's not powerful, somebody who's not significant, doesn't go to the mayor's house, anybody else in a position of power. He goes to the weak and the lowly. And God asks the widow through Elijah, exercise faith, and she does, because God gives her that faith, gives her the promise, the, top, the promise looks totally counterintuitive. You know, what if God said, Mark, take a drink. Anytime you're thirsty, take a drink from the cup. It will never be empty. That's basically what he was saying to the woman. You got your container of flour. You got your little bit of oil. They would take those together to make bread. Trust me. And it won't run out. And it didn't for the better part of three and a half years. It did not run out. The widow and her son lived in the house. Elijah lived in a little apartment on, on top of the house. And God miraculously provided. Well, at the end of the chapter, the widow's son dies. He gets sick very, very suddenly. He dies very quickly. The widow, of course, is distraught. 
and upset. Elijah prays and God raises the widow's son from the dead. And I believe that God included that in that chapter, in that part of the history, because in addition to providing rain, or supposedly providing rain, Baal also was said to give life. But he never did. But God did. So what can we learn from this account? First, there's a pattern that you see. The culture in Israel, the people of Israel, moved from worshiping God the way God said to worship Him, to worshiping God a different way, to worshiping a false god. And they're not the only ones to go through that. Actually, right worship of God is a constant struggle. If you go back and look at the history of the United States, the people that first came to settle came because they wanted freedom to worship God as the way they understood God wanted to be worshipped from the Bible. They didn't want a state religion that excluded all our denomination, that excluded all other denominations. Yet, that was in the 1600s. The first Great Awakening was in the 1700s. It was the second and third generation. Now that things were getting established and they were doing well, they were being pulled away by the lure of wealth and thought that's where comfort is, that's where the good is. And God began to work. And he worked again in the Second Great Awakening during the Civil War in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. Again and again, right worship of God is a constant struggle and it's so easy for us to begin to move. Even if we haven't changed the form at all, even if we're still coming to church, yet in our thinking, we can think of God differently. We can read God's Word differently, not the way He wants us to. Second, we see that God is the one who provides. Provides life for people. Not Baal, not anything else. You and I, our gods, they're not statues. They're things like success and entertainment and pleasure and power and money and control and approval. And we look to them and we say, "This, you can give me what I need, you can give me what I long for. Maybe a little bit they can, but it does not last, and there's always a sting, and that sting is death, because we've turned away from life. And why do we do this? Because we forget. We're not remembering anymore who God is and what God says and how He gives life, and also because we're naturally spiritually blind. And if you're spiritually blind, you don't, we don't see God accurately when we don't see ourselves accurately. We also see in this God's sovereignty over life and death, not only providing food miraculously, but raising the sun from the dead. We see that God provides. He provides what we need to fulfill the calling He has given us. God sent Elijah to the creek, and God provided for him food. God sent him to Zarephath, and God provided for him there. And God provides for us today for what He calls us to do, not necessarily for what we want, not necessarily what would help us to be comfortable, but he gives us what we need. And God gives direction, calls us to follow his lead. Then we see this, looking at Israel, the, the people. God sometimes allows us to experience what I call a spiritual desert. Situation is hard and difficult. And there's extra pressures and things going on. 
And if you want to, to get some good perspective on spiritual desert, read some of the letters from John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace. He was a pastor, and he wrote letters to people. And in some of those letters, he talks about the good that God does and the fact that these dry times, these hard times, are God's goodness to us. They're reminding us of how easily we turn away. They're reminding us of how God provides, how loving He is, how He forgives and is so patient with us. So with all of these things in mind, let's thank God that He pursues us. Let's thank God that He chooses to love us, that He provides for us. He gives us everything that we need. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank you for your loving kindness, your great patience. We thank you for this reminder we have in Kings that you're the one who sent Elijah. You're the one that sent Elijah to warn the people, to confront the people, to confront Ahab. You confront us as well. You warn us. You call us to remember. You you bring people in our lives. You speak to us by your Spirit. We thank you for all of this. We thank you for loving us. Thank you for the hope that we have because you are good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.